stories where we love to hear your stories about a loved one who's passed or about your very first job as a kid and we've done a whole lot of stories from you and by you in your own voice and today well this story is about a quirk yes a quirk and we've all got them and we've all got a story around our quirks and our families have certainly stories about our quirks well a listener and a friend in Chicago Nick Zagoda joins us now against his wife's advice to discuss his hygiene quirk. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lee. It's always good to speak to you. You bet. And Nick, we hear that great Chicago accent. We love accents on this show. And uh, tell us a little bit and tell the audience what you do for a living and why your wife just implored you not to do this. I've been a lifetime Chicagoan. As you can tell, I've tried to lose this accent for 60 years and I gave up about 20 years ago. And, uh, 20 years ago when I was 40, I gave up. I'm 60 now. I've lived here my whole life, and uh, and it, it's part of me, I guess, and I can't get rid of it. I have a law practice downtown in Chicago. I've got two partners, and we've got 11 other lawyers that work for us. We're corporate and transactional lawyers who do sophisticated uh, corporate and transactional and M&A work on a, on a daily basis, both nationally and internationally. And when I told my wife, my friend Lee wanted to speak about this today, she said, are you out of your mind telling people about this? If I were you, I'd be hiding it. <laughs> but I don't think I've got anything to hide. I don't think, I think everybody's got something, and, and this happens to be mine. Well, that's good, and you're owning it, and I love that. So let's talk about it, this hygiene thing you have. There's some kind of story that encapsulates it all about you and a commuter train. Tell the story, Nick. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not so good with people and uh, shaking hands and eating at communal tables and et cetera, et cetera. People I know are fine. People I don't know, I have no idea where it started. I just uh, don't feel good in positions where I don't know people and we're very close. And I never take the train. I've been driving downtown from my suburban home where my wife and I have lived for 38 years to uh, downtown Chicago every day for 38 years. And my wife will tell me on occasion, what are you, crazy? You're complaining about the traffic. Why don't you jump on the train and i say cast the train we're just close to people we don't know if we could get a private train car where i could pick the people that come on the train car that i knew that they don't have to be young or old rich or poor nice or mean i just have to know them unfortunately that's not the way the commuter system works in chicago so they're with strangers on the train and last winter it was a horrible day we had two or three feet of snow and it was still snowing, and I said to my wife, I have to get downtown today. And she said, well, get on the train. It'll, you know you're going to get there. It's not going to take you two and a half hours to get there and two and a half hours to get home. And I said, Ken, I just can't do the train. She said, you have to do the train. It's crazy to drive. It, it, you're, it, you might get stuck downtown. You don't know what's going to happen. Well, I got on a train. I got on a train at my little suburban train stop. It's about a 35-minute train ride. I was fine till the next stop. A woman got on and sat next to me. I text my wife. I said, Kath, I, I don't know if this is going to work. There's a woman sitting next to me on a train. 
She said, Nick, you're on the train. There's going to be someone sitting next to you. Just relax. You're fine. The woman takes her coat off. She puts her takes her coat off, and it's on my leg. I text my wife, Kath. There's a woman next to me on the train. She take she's taking her coat off, and now her coat is on my leg. And she, Kathy texts back very nicely. Please just ask her to remove your coat from her coat from your knee, and everything will be fine. And I said, ma'am, pardon me, but your coat is on my knee. And she gives me a glaring look, and she moves her coat from my knee. Then she starts coughing. And I said to Kathy, in the text, Kath, now she's coughing. And I'm getting freaked out here. I think you're going to have to pick me up at the next stop. And she said, okay, listen, if you think I'm going to pick you up at the next stop, you're out of your mind. So you <laughs> figure this out, look out the window, ignore the coffin, read your book. I'm trying to read my book. I can't read my book. The woman's coughing. So now she starts sneezing. This is two stops later. So I tell my wife, the University of Chicago is between my house and downtown Chicago. I say, Kathy, you have to pick me up. I have to get off the train at the University of Chicago. This woman is now she's sneezing and she's not covering her nose and, and I'm in a mess and I don't know what to do. And I can't, there's nowhere to go. There's people standing in the aisles of the train. I can't possibly move. I can't do You have to pick. And she said, listen, genius, if I drive to the University of Chicago, it'll take me two hours to get there. Then it'll take both of us two and a half or three hours to get home. So here's what I suggest you do. I suggest you forget about this for a while. And get, I said, you're not going to come and say, she, I am not going to come and save you. She did not come and save me. I survived. Rather scarred, I might add. But I survived. <laughs> Went downtown, went straight to uh, the Union League Club in Chicago, where I've been a member forever, took a shower, changed my clothes, and was able to go to work for a full day without working. But thank goodness I have a change of clothes there. Or otherwise, that would never, ever would I have been able to last a full day. And thanks for that story. And you're listening to Nick Zagoda, and he's a lawyer in Chicago and a friend. And this segment, well, it's my quirk is what we're calling it. And we want to hear your quirk and send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We've all got one, folks, and just confess. Confess, share it with us. I mean, and I love the way Nick owns his. He just owns his. One day I'll write up mine. Uh, mine's just as embarrassing as his, and it's got to be embarrassing. And so whatever your quirk is, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Nick Zagoda's quirk. Well, a lot of our quirks, those of us who are neat freaks, and I am one, I never step into a public shower without something on my feet, ever. People look at me funny. I don't care. I'm wearing something on my feet or I ain't getting in. My quirk, just one of them, here on Our American Stories.
Here's the story of a very old decree Forced on King John as he made off with the revenue Of us barons and the aristocracy He took our land and for a laugh held our sons hostage too Magna Carta Magna Carta Told King John he's gotta be This is Lee Habib and this is How American Stories And you're listening to this interesting music about, of all things, the Magna Carta and the idea of setting history to music, well, it worked out pretty well for the composer of Hamilton setting Ron Chernow's remarkable biography into one of the greatest hit plays of all time. And that's what we're about to dive into. Not Hamilton, the Magna Carta. During our twice-monthly series, Rule of Law, on what the rule of law is, what happens when it's absent and present in human life, and how it silently shapes the world around us without us even knowing it. And our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of this British document that paved the way for what we now know and love as the United States of America. Magna Carta was negotiated in the great meadow of Runnymede. And it's still a very atmospheric place today. The great meadow still stretches outside the Thames. We're listening to the preeminent scholar on Magna Carta, British historian David Carpenter, who has an appropriately named book, Magna Carta. It's very close to Heathrow Airport, and the great aeroplanes which take off from Heathrow come up and they fly over Runnymede, and they often then turn and, and fly all the way down its length and disappear into distance. And it's rather symbolic in a way because, as I say, they're taking Magna Carta with them through the world. And of course, that is true that the Charter has become one of the most, perhaps the most famous document in world constitutional history. Okay, but what? Is it this thing that's in the dead language of Latin? This thing that politicians like Britain's former Prime Minister David Cameron debated with his opponents. Harriet Harman. Last month, the Prime Minister celebrated the Magna Carta. If he accepts that in a democracy there needs to be an effective check on executive power, Will he abandon his plans to water down the Human Rights Act? The point she makes about the Magna Carta, I would say, uh, demonstrates that there were human rights before the Human Rights Act. This thing that's even allowed such a raucous debate as the one you just heard to happen every single week during the legendary question time in Britain's Parliament. And this thing that the same David Cameron did not know what it meant in English, his country's language, when of all people, David Letterman asked him. And the literal translation is was what? You have magna... I, I, again, you're testing me. Um, <laughs> boy, it'd be good if you knew it. this. Yeah, well, it would be. This thing that the rapper Jay-Z named one of his albums after, and we have no clue why. People who have time to debate such things in online forums say that they think it's because Magna means greater, and Carta sounds close to Jay-Z's actual last name, Carter. Meaning that Jay-Z thinks of himself as great, which is as close as you can get to the opposite of the spirit of Magna Carta. Holy Grail. 
Now, you might be saying to yourself, Alex, that was a cutesy little detour that you just brought us through, but you still haven't answered. What is Magna Carta? Well, I'm not ready to answer yet, but David Carpenter is with a little prehistory. Going way, way back to the reign of King John, all the way back to the 13th century. 1214, there was a great deal of resentment in England about the whole government of King John. His manipulation of justice, denial of justice, his seizure of people's property without due legal process. Because John, if you got against him, would simply send in the heavies. He would send in his household knights to seize your property, possibly even to imprison you. There was also loathing of John personally, loathing of John. And that was because he was a murderer, murdering some of his greatest opponents. He murdered his nephew Arthur, who was a rival for the throne. And in the most notorious of all, he murdered the greatest noble woman of the age, Matilda de Breos, starved her to death in the vaults of Corfe Castle, along with her eldest son. And that wasn't John's only problem. His great quarrel with the church, and that was because in 1204-1205, the Archbishop of Canterbury died, and John thought he had a wonderful successor, which was a loyal agent, the Bishop of Norwich. But the monks of Canterbury elected somebody else, the Pope intervened, and the Pope insisted that instead of John's candidate, the Archbishop of Canterbury should be Stephen Langton. And now, Stephen Langton was actually an Englishman, but he was a professor at the University of Paris. He was a great academic. And John just thought, well, is, what, how can I accept as Archbishop someone I don't know? I mean, university academics didn't swim into John's orbit very often. And so I think in some ways he said, I don't know him, but also he's been a professor, he's practiced teaching at the great capital of my great enemy, Paris. And so John refused to have him, and that led into a long quarrel with the Pope, Pope Innocent III. In the end, England was placed under an interdict. John was excommunicated. What it meant was that mass couldn't be celebrated, people couldn't be buried in consecrated ground, churches were closed. I think it did have a profound effect on the on the psyche of people in England, depressing effects. And of course, obviously, it's John who's, in a sense, to blame for it. And the, the accounts of it, they are horrific. They, they do indicate a, a very profound trauma caused by the interdict. On the other hand, it's perfectly true, government went on. It, it didn't stop John exacting large sums of money from his subjects. And in some ways, John almost welcomed the interdict because it meant he could make even more money from the church. He simply seized church property. Uh, and, and so in that sense, John came from it. I, I suppose I ought to say, well, what about John personally? Well, I mean, he had a reputation for impiety, for impiety. I mean, John laughed during Mass. He, he, the records of his own government show him constantly having to give alms to the poor because he'd broken various fast days because he'd eaten meat on Friday or gone hunting on a saint's day or gone hawking when there were restrictions on those kinds of activities. So John was notoriously impious. And yet there was still more. And Magna Carta, if it's about one thing, is about money. Now... Already by the time John came to the throne, there was very great resentment at the high levels of taxation in England. Well, 
John tripled his revenues, tripled them. And that was because in 1204, he lost a large part of the Continental Empire. And so he then spent 10 furious years in England, rebuilding his treasure, getting as much money as he could to try and win that empire back. Everyone suffered from these financial exactions, the church, the barons, knights, free tenants, all the way down to the peasantry. And in 1214, he launched that campaign on the continent. It was a disaster. His allies were decisively defeated at a great battle in Flanders, the Battle of Bouvines. John's campaign in the south of France ran into the ground and got nowhere. So when he comes back to England in the autumn of 1214, his treasure is spent, his prestige is in tatters. And that's when his baronial enemies went for him. They took a great oath that they would bind themselves together and not make peace with the king until he gave the concessions they wanted. And they were already thinking in terms of a great charter which would restrict his operations and solve all these grievances in terms of detail. That was what was so new, is that the barons put together, uh, helped by churchmen, a very, very detailed program which restricts the king. And in the end, John gives way. Gives way to meeting at Runnymede and considering their demands. Why does he give way in 1215? Well, I've said his situation was parlous when he got back from his campaign in France in the autumn of 1214, but it wasn't actually completely desperate at that stage. He still had control of all his castles in England. He still had sufficient money to hire mercenary soldiers. And so in the course of 1215, first months of 1215, there's really a standoff between John and his opponents. Neither side want quite to commit themselves to outright war. And then something happened in May 1215, which destroyed John's position, and that was the fall of London. The barons, by a clever ruse, got hold of London, and that meant John knew he could not win the war, because London's the great capital of the country. Its wealth is now in baronial hands. It's far too large to besiege. John knew there was no easy way to win the war, and so what he thought was, right, that these wretched people are demanding this charter, are granted to them. Uh, I don't think it'll ever be enforced, but nonetheless, I'll make the concessions they want, and probably that will uh, mean they'll all go home, uh, and there'll be peace, and then possibly, I hope, things will go on much as before. And when we come back, more on the story of Magna Carta. First salvo in our Rule of Law series. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Alex and the story of Magna Carta. On June 10th, 1215, King John and the Barons meet at Runnymede. And just imagine this epic meeting of minds and of power. A king for the first time in human history significantly giving into the demands of people who are not kings. 
We do know quite a bit about the scene at Runnymede, and it's wonderfully described by Ralph of Coggeshall, abbot of the Cistercian Abbey in Essex, and he describes the great tents and pavilions stretched out across Runnymede, the great, great pavilions of the king, and they towered above the smaller tents of the, of the great barons. So you can imagine that great meadow just full of people. Now, during all that time, between 10th and 19th of June, which is when they were all encamped at Runnymede, we know that John was actually living at Windsor Castle. And I think that's because he felt unsafe in Runnymede. You know, if you spend the night there, surrounded by these hordes of your enemy barons and knights, you might be unsafe. So, conversely, of course, the barons weren't prepared to come to Windsor because there they would have been in the king's power. All of them feeling safe, as safe as one can feel, on neutral ground amongst the enemy, came up with the Magna Carta. Charter was conceded on June the 15th. That's the day John gave it. It's, the Charter ends given by our hand in the meadow of Runnymede on the 15th of June in the 17th year of our reign. But when John was finished, that didn't mean that it was finished. And there were another four days before the assembled barons actually accepted the, the peace that the Charter had brought. A process that by itself was a victory for humankind. That not a king single-handedly, but that we together decide how we want our society to be run. Concessions that the barons couldn't have possibly known would become one of the greatest in history, even called by some the birth certificate of the rule of law, the guarantee that publicly known and stable law will rule the day, allowing all of us to go about our days, living our lives, building our dreams, our families, our careers without Fear, as long as we respect the law too, as opposed to the thousands of years before then of rule by whim, the whim of the dictator. But these parents did know that something big enough did happen, at least for their own lives, that they celebrated with their king. John then did celebrate with a great feast. Probably that was at, at Windsor Castle. And so just for a moment, uh, it looked as though there was going to be a genuine reconciliation. But that would change. Before we get there, though, we continue the celebration of the historic concessions that these barons did achieve in writing. The very first chapter of Magna Carta protects the liberties of the church and restricts the ability of the king to place his own people into bishoprics. And, and so in the end, John submitted. Submitted to a civil institution ruling itself. Then there were the winds on the hated taxes like this strangely named one. 
there was a tax called scootage. And this meant that if the king didn't want the military service of a great baron, he could demand a money payment itself, scootage. And that's because the Latin scutagium means a shield, a shield. And so scootage has been taken relatively rarely by kings before 1199. John, though, takes two or three times more scootages than ever before. And that is then restricted in Magna Carta because Magna Carta's chapters 12 and 14 state that no scootage in future is to be taken without the consent of the kingdom, without in effect, although he doesn't use the, the word, the, the consent of parliament. The consent of those who make the laws and the laws themselves again bye-bye to the whims of the king and it also curtailed his authority over widows <laughs> oh i'm not joking it really says here widows to preserve widows from being forced by the king into remarriage now before 1215 this was a very major source of patronage and revenue the king's ability to marry off widows to his henchmen as reward or alternatively which happened a great deal he would charge widows large sums of money for permission not to be forced into marriage now what magna carta says is that widows are not to be forced to be remarried any longer the charter has been called a major step in the emancipation of women and the rule of their own lives then there's the most famous line of the Magna Carta. One which is still on the statute book of Britain today says no free man shall be imprisoned, exiled, deprived of property, save by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. And that's a real beauty and about as close to a definition of the rule of law as you're gonna get. But it wasn't law for all or even for most. Now the catch there is free, no free man. And that meant that the unfree peasants who form the great bulk of the population are not protected by the charter from um, any of those things. Or well, the most important thing they're not protected from is being deprived arbitrarily of their land. And that meant that their lords could simply um, chuck them off the land to discipline them. Uh, you know, if you're in any way difficult, recalcitrant, bullshit, the Lord can simply remove you from your land, deprive you of your, your living, and you have no legal recourse. Magna Carta does not protect you against that at all. It isn't talked about much, but the Magna Carta ain't perfect. It was actually completely thrown out of the window only a few years after it came to be. But it laid a stake, a stake in the ground that this rule of law thing should be a thing, that it must be a thing, a stake that could and would be expanded over the centuries to every citizen, to every race in Britain, in America, and now in the 123 democracies of the world, 64% of the countries on earth. There's clearly more way to go. There's more to fight for. And even in democratic countries like ours, as we'll cover in this series, the rule of law 
is often violated and must be perennially fought for. Something that the British barons understood. Then, at the end, the most stunning and revolutionary feature was that 25 barons were appointed, chosen by the barons themselves, in order to enforce the charter, and indeed to put right anything else the king does wrong. So a permanent executive is now set up to monitor royal government. And if you think the charter is being broken, you can appeal to the 25, and then the 25 are actually empowered in the charter itself to actually force the king to keep the charter and to put right any breaches in it by seizing his lands, his castles, in effect by making war on the king. Uh, resistance is made lawful. And there you have it, what you didn't know, some of the things I didn't know, and I went to a great American law school, the University of Virginia. And we're going to learn so much more about the rule of law in this twice-monthly series entitled as such. And if you want to find Rule of Law, go to iTunes and search for Rule of Law. And subscribe to Our American Network while you're at it. We love to talk about history because it's relevant in our lives today. From the Magna Carta comes the Constitution. From the Constitution comes all of our God-given rights. This is Lee Habib, the story of Magna Carta, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for one of our favorite recurring segments, Life Lessons from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I'd like to do things in a funny, different way. A memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says, that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, Why Make It Hard? Managing people can be very complex or rather easy. It all depends on the kind of people you hire. We try to hire people who happen to want to do exactly what we need them to do. So those kind of people don't need a lot of management. We give them the freedom to do what they want to do, whether it's creating new machine vision software or whether it's uh, packaging and, and fulfilling customer orders. We find people who actually have a passion for doing what we want them to do. And therefore, we just have to tell them how much of it to do and we leave them alone. So my view on management is that manager's responsibility is to clear the decks 
clear the desk of all of your people from the stuff that is bothering them, whether it's medical issues or home issues, and we try to help them solve all those issues so they can come to work as a place to escape from the rest of the world. They can escape from their day-to-day -day problems and just do what they want to do. And that's very true in engineering. We have, I have a senior vice president uh, of the company who's been with me many years, and he says, Dr. Bob, I would pay you to do what I'm doing here. It's, it's that enjoyable. This is exactly what I want to do. Thank you for creating the environment, and thank you for paying me and giving me stock options to do what I want to do. And what a breath of fresh air. If you're managing people, listen to Dr. Bob. Take his advice. I know it sounds counterintuitive and different than everything you've heard from anybody in the motivational business, but Dr. Bob's got words of wisdom. Follow him, and we have much more to come from Dr. Bob. And now we turn to our two of our favorite subjects, history, and this day in history, which we do so much of with Hillsdale College, and of course, music. And that leads us to our favorite recurring segment as well, This Week in Music History with Jesse. 1967, the Turtles start a three-week run at number one on the U.S. Singles Chart with Happy Together. Imagine me and you, I do, I think about you day and night. It's only right to think about the girl you love and hold her tight, so happy together. If I should call you up, invest a dime, and you say you belong to me, and ease my mind. Imagine how the world could be So very fine So happy together And in 1969, Marvin Gaye was number one on the UK singles chart with I Heard It Through the Grapevine. The song was first recorded by The Miracles and also had a million copies sold in 1967 for Gladys Knight and the Pips. It's the longest-running Motown number one hit in the States where it hit the top 100 chart for seven weeks. It was Gaye's first number one hit, and it made him a star. And in 1990, Motley Crue's Tommy Lee was arrested for mooning the audience at a gig in Augusta. He was charged with indecent exposure. And in 2013, Justin Bieber ran into some trouble at the Munich airport when customs officials detained and quarantined his monkey due to a lack of documentation required to bring said monkey into Germany. Bieber went on to perform in Munich while the monkey was kept in the custody of authorities. And born this week in music history, 1937, American jazz musician Herb Alpert. Most associated with the group Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, Alpert was the A in A&M Records with Jerry Moss that first opened from a garage in his home. 
Alpert and Moss sold A&M in 1987 to Polygram Records, $500 million. Also born this week in music history, 1942, American singer-songwriter Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul, who had the 1967 U.S. number one and U.K. number ten single, Respect. Plus over 15 other top 40 hits. Another born this week in music history, this time 1948, Steven Tyler, the one and only frontman and lead singer for Aerosmith, nominated for many awards throughout his career, but maybe one of the few artists in classic rock who's been nominated for a Grammy, an Oscar, and an Emmy Award. There was a time when I was so broken hearted, love wasn't much of a friend of mine. Tables have turned, yeah, and calls me and then where's that party? That kind of love was the killing kind. So listen. In 1972, Elvis Presley recorded what would be his last major hit, Burning Love.
And one final born this week in music history, this time in 1962, American hip-hop artist MC Hammer. He had the 1990 U.S. number one album with Hammer, Please Don't Hurt Him. It spent a record 21 weeks at the top of the charts. That's this week told you, homeboy, in music history. Yeah, that's how we living and you know This is our American story. Look in my eyes, man. You can't touch this. Yo, let me bust the funky lyrics. Fresh new kicks and pants. You got it like that. Now you know you want to dance. So move out of your seat and get a five girl and catch this beat while it's rolling. Hold on. Pump a little bit and let them know it's going on like that. Like that. Our American Stories, and we love to bring you stories from every walk of life, sports, business, faith, love, and some of our very favorite stories are about our nation's history. Today, we have a special one from Howard Husick, who is the Manhattan Institute's Vice President of Research and Publications. Here's Howard sharing a story that he personally pieced together over many months of digging. This is a story about the life of someone whose life was extraordinary, but also obscure. It begins on what's now a vacant lot, not far from New York City, about 30 miles north, on the shore of the Long Island Sound. It reveals itself only by examination of census records, starting in 1840, which hint at drama. A free African-American man living with his wife and son decades before the Civil War. That man named William Voorhees is so obscure that we have no photos of him. There is, in fact, little trace of him to be found. The lot on which his house stood in the hamlet of Milton in the city of Rye, New York, is today empty except for trees and ground cover. The site on which the business he operated is gone, replaced by an apartment building. There is, however, one clue that his life was, for its time, extraordinary. He has an impressive memorial marker in the African-American Cemetery in Rye, New York, established by that town's wealthy, abolitionist-leaning Halstead family for people of color who were excluded from an adjoining white cemetery. It's the grandest grave marker in that cemetery, a hint that it marks the grave of an accomplished and wealthy person. And indeed, William Voorhees was both of those things, after he was, in all likelihood, born a slave, not in Mississippi, Alabama, or South Carolina, but in New Jersey. Yes, New Jersey, where slavery not only existed but was not fully abolished until, yes, 
after the Civil War. How do we know about him? It turns out that by putting together clues from census records, county property transactions, estate documents, even a lawsuit, that one could discern the arc of his life, one that is literally a story that can be described as up from slavery. Let's begin in what was once the village of Milton, squeezed into a thin peninsula between the Long Island Sound and a separate arm of the Sound known as Blind Brook. It's here where William Voorhees and his extended family lived between roughly 1840 and 1880. You can imagine his house if you think of a small frame farmhouse. He lived not far from the bustling small port of Milton Harbor at a time when carts filmed with farm products lined up to offload their crops grown nearby onto sloops bound to Manhattan. It was a time when African Americans were virtually all in dire poverty if they were not enslaved. In Rye, of which Milton was part, there was a not insignificant black population. At its height, about 10% of the residents, many living on farms near Milton Point. Most, however, were servants or laborers and households headed by wealthy whites. Their surname suggested that they may have once been slaves to those same families when slavery thrived in New York in the early 1800s. But William Voorhees was in a quite different situation. He was wealthy enough that he owned his own home. His property included not just the house, but brass lamps, cherry wood furniture, feather beds, horses, and a sleigh. His house was worth $4,000 in 1860. That would be $1.1 million today. His $1,500 in personal assets was more than those of most of his white neighbors, whose ranks included blacksmiths, wheelwrights, carpenters, and watermen, those who harvested oysters in the nearby Sound. How in the world did Voris accumulate his assets? His substantial wealth came from his success as an entrepreneur and business owner. He gathered and sold to farmers the salt marsh hay on his property. His son gathered and sold oysters. But his real wealth came from his business on the other side of the peninsula, on what is still a very popular summer beach. His was a combination restaurant, saloon, and ice cream parlor, filled with caned bottom chairs, a candy case, two counters, and seven tables. The waitstaff, if you will, was also African-American. They rented rooms in the Voorhees' house, where he lived along with his wife Jane, his son John, and his elderly mother Martha. How in the world, one might ask, did such a man emerge at that time in American history? Well, not because William Voorhees started out with any special advantages, that's for sure. Just the opposite. There's every reason to believe that he began his life in slavery. He left a clue to his past on the federal census records of 1860, on which he listed his birthplace and that of his wife, not as New York where he lived, but New Jersey. Might seem today like an inconsequential difference, but in 1840, when William Voorhees first appeared on the census records in Rye, it was no small matter. New York had, in 1827, abolished slavery. In New Jersey, however, it lingered on. It had been brought to the colony originally by the Dutch. There, writes Bergen County historian William Lynn, the principal ports of entry for imported slaves were Perth Amboy in what is now Camden. There were barracks at Perth Amboy 
in which blacks newly arrived from Africa were sold. Some of the accounts of the time are chilling, such as the 1762 newspaper advertisement. Just imported from the River Gambia and to be sold at the Upper Ferry, now Camden, opposite this city, a parcel of men and women slaves with some boys and girls of different ages. It is generally allowed that the Gambia slaves are much more robust and tractable than any other slaves from the coast of Guinea and more capable of undergoing the severity of the winter seasons in the North American colonies. Such was the likely path of William Voorhees' ancestors to a farm named for a Dutch settler named Voorhees. And when we come back, more on the remarkable life story of William Voorhees here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're back with the story of William Voorhees, who was likely born into slavery but became a successful businessman. When we hear of slavery, most of us think of the Deep South. So here is Howard Yusick picking up the story with a history of this despicable institution in, of all places, my home state of New Jersey. There's a rich recorded history of Bergen County slavery, both fascinating and brutal. According to Graham Hodges in his Bergen County Historical Society monograph, Black Resistance in Colonial Revolutionary Bergen County, slaves caught trying to run away or judged guilty of violent crime, including the murder of a master, would literally be burned at the stake. Hodges wrote of a 1752 incident when a slave found to have murdered his master stood the fire with greatest intrepidity and as the flames covered his body shouted to the assembled blacks, They had taken the root but left the branches. Such events, it's noted, resonated across the colony. One can only assume memories of them remained at the time when William Voorhees was born, about 50 years later, when slavery still remained significant in Bergen County. In 1800, there were more than 12,000 slaves in New Jersey. By law passed in 1804, those born before that date were to be enslaved their entire lives. And indeed, some slaves remained in New Jersey even after the Civil War. And the state legislature at first refused to ratify the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery. By state law, African Americans born in New Jersey after 1884 still had to remain indentured on the land on which they were born for 25 years. Even free blacks were in danger of being re-enslaved and sold south if they traveled outside their home county without a certificate proving their free status. It's no exaggeration to say that just as the Ohio River separated slave states from free, so for a time did the Hudson. 
Slaves who sought to escape on ferry from Elizabeth to Manhattan might find themselves pursued and returned. New York, however, was not altogether different than New Jersey, even though slavery was abolished earlier there in 1817. In both states, slavery was phased out. In New Jersey, by requiring blacks to remain as slaves or to be indentured, in New York, the phase-out to complete abolition began in 1817 and ended 10 years later. Slaves, it's worth keeping in mind, were a major financial investment. The gradual approach to ending slavery allowed owners to realize a return on that investment, either by labor or by selling slaves south. Was William Voorhees really born in slavery in New Jersey? One cannot know with absolute certainty. But it is the case that there were five slaveholding farm families in Bergen County named Voorhees, all in the same small township of New Barbados, named by Dutch settlers who had relocated from that Dutch Caribbean island. For the purposes of census records, slaves were property, their names not listed, but the three slaves who lived in 1830 on the farm owned by one Henry Voorhees included one the age of William Voorhees and another the age of his mother Martha. He was listed on census records as being almost 70 years old in 1870, old enough to have had to remain a slave if he had stayed in New Jersey. At the time of his death, he was 67 years old in 1870, meaning he was born before 1804. If he'd stayed in New Jersey, he may have had to be a slave his entire life. Perhaps he was freed by owner Henry Voorhees. We know that William and Jane Voorhees named their own son, who lived with them, Henry. We know with certainty, however, that his mother Martha, aged 96 in 1870, would definitely have remained enslaved had she and William stayed in New Jersey. And we know with certainty from census records that by 1840, William and his family were living in New York and that over the next 30 years, he would demonstrate just how successful a free black man could be, even then, given the opportunity. In 1840, he was listed by the census as a peddler. In 1850, as a laborer. By 1870, he was one of the wealthiest African Americans in New York. He was not just a wealthy man, but a community leader, a trustee, his estate records show, of something called the Colored Church of Rye. It's worth noting that he had some important help from one of Rye's first families, the Halsteads whose own estate was right across the road from the Voorhees' home. Some of the furniture from their estate, named Pinecrest, can be found today in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. In 1842, Alicia and Harriet Halstead sold Voorhees the three-quarters of an acre lot on which his house would stand. They even granted the then peddler a mortgage. The Halsteads had likely themselves once been slave owners, but this leading family became early members of the local Methodist church where abolition held sway. It could not have been common for wealthy whites to do business with blacks, let alone help an African-American peddler build a home directly across the road from their own mansion. But Voorhees himself had made a series of important decisions that led to his quite stunning success. Crucially, at a time of violence still against blacks in New York City, he'd made the good decision to move to Milton, where he was among a community of well-established, if poor, free blacks and in an economically thriving location. Milton was growing and shipping farm products south to Manhattan, building the boats on which to ship them, 
building and repairing homes for the crews and captains. As the New York Times would later write, not many years ago when the farms of rye were tilled, there was a big store or warehouse in Milton and market boats ran to New York carrying country products of all kinds. It was not uncommon to see a row of loaded wagons extending a quarter of a mile up the road, waiting to be unloaded. In light of his success and his circle of friends and business dealings, why did William Voris fade into obscurity? The answer involves events at the end of his life. Sadly, all did not end well for Voris and his family. Soon after his death, the country was struck by the financial panic of 1873, a depression, and fortunes of all sorts, great and small, were lost. He had picked a bad time to die. His business debts exceeded even his substantial assets, and his neighbors would buy at auction much of the contents of the house where his widow and son Henry would remain. One William Gedney bought a looking glass. John Perkins bought the dishes. William Hess bought the cherry bureau. Jane Voorhees, however, was allowed to keep a brass kettle, five lamps, and what was described as a lot of books. There was dispute over his estate in the wake of his death, with competing claims for a gold watch he wore and a court claim for what was said to have been a bill unpaid for the nursing care he'd received during his final illness. Affidavits related to that long-ago case are what allow one to learn the details of his life and possessions. But the Voris legacy was more than financial. The family begun by William and Jane would go on to thrive. Their daughter, Jane Ann or Jenny, would marry one Joseph Randall, who'd become the head cook at a fancy local country club. Their daughter, Alice, likely named for William Voris's daughter-in-law, would marry one Robert Jones, who, like William Voris, would prove to be an entrepreneur, starting a radio repair store. After his untimely death by drowning, his wife, Alice Voris, would raise their six children on her own by doing domestic work. Their daughter, Doris, would become the first in this extended family to graduate from college. Doris Bailey Rivas, the great-granddaughter of William Voris, is alive today. She's had a long career in federal, state, and county government, and her extended family is filled with successful professionals. On Veterans Day and Memorial Day, many gather at the African Cemetery in Rye, New York. There one can find, on a tall marble monument, this inscription, William Voris died November 16, 1872, aged 67 years and 8 months. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. And what a story. And thank you, Howard Yusick, for giving us that story. And Howard works at the, at the Manhattan Institute. He's the VP of Research and Publications. But this is a story he'd written in a much longer form. And you can hear it at OurAmericanNetwork.org. And send this one to friends. I mean, it's a story about race, about the original sin of this country. And it wasn't just a southern original sin. The North and South were complicit. And even after it became only a southern institution, the North was still buying the cotton and shipping it overseas. And were dependent upon almost completely the manufacture and the farming that took place on those southern plantations. I believe it was something like 50% of all of our exports were cotton. It was something like that. It was that big. And just great work on this remarkable life. William Voorhees, 1840, a peddler. 1850, a laborer. And by the 1870s, an entrepreneur who's wealthy and who owns a home that today would be worth millions of dollars 
in the Long Island Sound. Also, by the way, we're getting a picture of the north. Go to Long Island now when you're not thinking farm country. And there's still some fishing, but nothing like what it used to be. This is Lee Habib, William Voorhees' story, in a way, the story of America and American history as it relates to race here on Our American Stories. stories and one of the new additions to our show is our villages stories and we've been sending our recent college graduate faith to this retirement community famous retirement community perhaps the biggest in the country and we sent her down there just to make friends have a good time and bring us back some stories and by the way the villages is home and this is in florida by the way about an hour north of orlando and you've heard about it i'm sure but the Villages has over 157,000 residents, 2,200 clubs, that's activity and organization clubs, that kind, and then 600 holes of golf. And there's live music on the squares, all three of the squares, every single night but for big old storms. And in her recent trip, Faith was able to attend an honor flight. The Honor Flight Network is a nonprofit organization created to recognize and celebrate America's veterans. Our donations help to bring the World War II vets to D.C. to visit and reflect at the monuments to their lives. According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, an estimated 640 World War II veterans die each day. Our time to express our thanks to these brave men and women is running out. But sadly, some of these veterans are either too old or too sick to make that plane trip. So sometimes the Honor Flight organization goes to where the veterans are. Faith was able to attend just such an event at the villages. She brings us a story from one of these veterans. Jean Nupp is a World War II veteran and a mere 92 years old. And an eventful 92 years it has been. After the Honor Flight, I had the opportunity of sitting down and talking with him for a little bit to ask him how his military career got started. Officer candidate, I they come around one day and when I was in high school, this was in 1943, they said if you'd be interested in going into the Navy Air Corps, you come and take some tests. And I took tests and that's how I started. Going through, the Navy put me through college as part of this uh, training program, but I ended up in the regular Navy as an officer in the Navy. I served from 1943 to 1946. Probably the high point of my career, I was in Tokyo Bay when they signed the surrender agreement aboard the Missouri with MacArthur. And then shortly after that, I was on a ship that was sent to different parts of Japan and blow them up, all their military installations. And I spent three years and I came back 
and went back to college. Probably the most vivid, I would say, being in Tokyo Bay when they signed the surrender agreement aboard the Missouri. How'd you feel? I, I was glad it was over. <laughs> Say, good, let's get out of here. Go home. How old were you? Let's see, at that point, I was 19 or 20. When that started, we got out of high school and went, went into the service. Now, returning from World War II was a very different experience than coming home from war today. For today's young soldiers, many feel separated from civilian society because so few of their peers have served in uniform. It wasn't like that in Jean's day. Many young men were drafted, and among those who weren't, many volunteered. So everyone knew at least one service member. So Jean's homecoming was about as smooth as it can be coming back from a world war. Came out of the Navy, went back to college, because the Navy sent me to college for a year and a half. So I came back and finished the same college I went to. Well, I got out of the Navy in 46, and then I graduated in 48. I got a job right after I graduated with the Hoover Vacuum Cleaner Company. I was a field auditor. I traveled all over the country auditing the Hoover offices. So that's what I did for a few years. It's always interesting to ask what an older generation thinks of a current one. So, I wanted to hear his thoughts on how things have changed. The country seemed more together rather than now. It seems kind of splintered and screwed up to me. It doesn't seem cohesive like it was during those days. Everybody was one game, one objective, and... Now it's kind of screwed up. How does that make you feel? I'm, uh, I, I'm glad I don't have much more to go with it. I'll tell you that. It was better in those days, really. But of all the differences that have occurred over time, Gene is most struck with how young people socialize. I mean, meeting people now, it's all computerized. See, in my day, you met at dances. You went to dances. Met girls at dances. That, that was it. Do you have any good stories from meeting girls at dances? I met my wife. Did you? How yeah. did that happen? We were in college, and they had this called. We used to have things called mixers. You'd go to the dance. There were the girls. There were the boys, and you danced and you mixed, and that's how it happened. And let's see. Two years later, after we met, three years we got married. And has she since passed? Or? Yes. Yep. As a matter of fact, I've had bad luck with ladies. My wife died. Then I, then I came here. I joined the single club. Met a lady there. We were kind of hooked up for about 12 years. Then she died. Oh, no. Do you think I'm hard on ladies? I I thought I was nice. Even though Gene has loved and lost, he certainly hasn't stopped. He goes on to describe his current love life. But um, life in the villages, I mean, well, was good. And now I'm in the home. The lady I was with, she passed away. 
But you know what? I met another lady. Did you really? I did. Yeah, how's that going? Going good. Yeah? Yeah. She's in the home with me. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, that... that you guys works. hang out? We do. What do you guys do? We go to dinner together. That's about the hanging out. And we sit on the porch. Our driver's licenses have really respired. So they have a jitney, that jitney there, mm -hmm. the Mission Oaks, that's where I live. If we get enough time, they will, she will take us to the restaurant. Oh. <laughs> Look at you, going yeah. on restaurant things. How old are you? I'm only 92. Sadly, our time together had to come to an end. I guess yeah. we're, we're ready to go back. Uh, yeah, you're, you're ready to load the bus. Oh, I'm okay. going to get loaded. One last question. Do you have any wisdom that you'd Got like it. to pass on? Follow your dream. The bus pulled up, and I quickly gave Gene a hug goodbye. And then he left. Because far be it from me to keep him from his restaurant date with his current lady friend. And Faith, how did you come to meet this gentleman? So all the veterans, they were all in a line so everyone could go through and shake hands. And he was near the end of the line. And every woman that went through, he had to make sure that he they got a kiss from him. And I was thinking, oh, I know I need to talk to that guy. Yep. And that was it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you picked well. Thanks for the work, Faith. It sounds like a pretty good gig. I want to come with you the next time. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and the story of Gene Nupp. Fought bravely for this country during World War II, and it's so true. There aren't many men left. And here on Our American Stories, we make a point of talking about our soldiers a lot. Soldiers who fought in wars so far back that it was at the beginning of our country, the Revolutionary War, our hour on George Washington, our time spent on the Battle of Yorktown, the Civil War, straight up to the most current wars and the most recent Medal of Honor winners. This is Our American Stories. Fates report... From the villages, or after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Ralph Waldo Emerson is a name you probably heard way back in high school, possibly elementary school. He was born in 1803, an American poet and philosopher. He began his career as a Unitarian minister in Boston, becoming famous around the world for his essays like Self-Reliance, History, The Oversoul, and Fate. He became a major name in the Transcendentalist movement where he earned the nickname the Sage of Concord. Self-Reliance is an essay written by Emerson in 1841, and it contains one of the most recurrent themes, the need for individuals to avoid conformity and false consistency and to follow their own instincts. It's the source of one of Emerson's most famous quotations, quote, A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. So stop what you're doing for just a minute, sit down and listen to the rare eloquence of an American master poet and philosopher. And now, 
Ralph Waldo Emerson's Self-Reliance. Familiar as the voice of the mind is to each, the highest merit we ascribe to Moses, Plato, and Milton is that they set at naught books and traditions, and spoke not what men, but what they thought. A man should learn to detect and watch that gleam of light which flashes across his mind from within more than the luster of the firmament of bards and sages. Yet he dismisses without notice his thought because it is his. In every work of genius we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. Great works of art have no more affecting lesson for us than this. They teach us to abide by our spontaneous impression with good-humored inflexibility the most when the whole cry of voices is on the other side. Else tomorrow a stranger will say with masterly good sense precisely what we have thought and felt all the time, and we shall be forced to take with shame our own opinion from another. There is a time in every man's education when he arrives at the conviction that envy is ignorance, that imitation is suicide, that he must take himself for better or worse as his portion, that though the wide universe is full of good, no kernel of nourishing corn can come to him but through his toil, bestowed on that plot of ground which is given to him to till. The power which resides in him is new in nature and none but he knows what that is which he can do, nor does he know until he has tried. Not for nothing one face, one character, one fact makes much impression on him, and another none. This sculpture in the memory is not without pre-established harmony. The eye was placed where one ray should fall that it might testify of that particular ray. We but half express ourselves, and are ashamed of that divine idea which each of us represents. It may be safely trusted as proportionate and of good issues, so it be faithfully imparted. But God will not have his work made manifest by cowards. A man is relieved and gay when he has put his heart into his work and done his best, but what he has said or done otherwise shall give him no peace. It is a deliverance which does not deliver. In the attempt, his genius deserts him. No muse befriends, no invention, no hope. Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Accept the place the divine providence has found for you, the society of your contemporaries, the connection of events. Great men have always done so, and confided themselves childlike to the genius of their age, betraying their perception that the absolutely trustworthy was seated at their heart, working through their hands, predominating in all their being. And we are now men, and must accept in the highest mind the same transcendent destiny, and not minors and invalids in a protracted corner, nor cowards fleeing before a revolution but guides, redeemers, and benefactors, obeying the almighty effort, and advancing on chaos and the dark. Next, Emerson speaks about the attitude of human nature by observing the world through the eyes of a child. What pretty oracles nature yields us on this text in the face and behavior of children, babes, and even brutes! That divided and rebel mind, that distrust of a sentiment because our arithmetic has computed the strength and means opposed to our purpose, these have not. 
their mind being whole, their eye is as yet unconquered, when when we look in their faces we are disconcerted. Infancy conforms to nobody, all conform to it, so that one babe commonly makes four or five out of the adults who prattle and play to it. So God has armed youth and puberty and manhood no less with its own piquancy and charm, and made it enviable and gracious and its claims not to be put by if it will stand by itself. Do not think the youth has no force, because he cannot speak to you and me. Hark! In the next room his voice is sufficiently clear and emphatic. It seems he knows how to speak to his contemporaries. Bashful or bold, then, he will know how to make us seniors very unnecessary. The nonchalance of boys who are sure of a dinner, and would disdain as much as a lord to do or say ought to conciliate one, is the healthy attitude of human nature. A boy is in the parlour what the pit is in the playhouse, independent, irresponsible. Looking out from his corner on such people and facts as pass by, he tries and sentences them on their merits, in the swift summary way of boys as good, bad, interesting, silly, eloquent, troublesome. He cumbers himself never about consequences, about interests. He gives an independent, genuine verdict. You must court him. He does not court you. But the man is, as it were, clapped into jail by his consciousness. As soon as he has once acted or spoken with éclat, he is a committed person, watched by the sympathy or the hatred of hundreds, whose affections must now enter into his account. There is no Lethe for this. Ah, that he could pass again into his neutrality! Who can thus avoid all pledges, and, having observed, observe again from the same unaffected, unbiased, unbribable, unaffrighted innocence, must always be formidable. He would utter opinions on all passing affairs, which, being seen to be not private but necessary, would sink like darts into the ear of men, and put them in fear. These are the voices which we hear in solitude, but they grow faint and inaudible as we enter into the world. We're listening to the introduction of Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance, and we now continue with part one of our series on this essay, where Emerson so bluntly shares his views on the struggle between society and the individual. Society everywhere is in conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members. Society is a joint-stock company in which the members agree, for the better securing of his bread to each shareholder, to surrender the liberty and culture of the eater. The virtue in most requests is conformity. Self-reliance is its aversion. It loves not realities and creators, but names and customs. Whoso would be a man must be a nonconformist. He who would gather immortal points must not be hindered by the name of goodness, but must explore if it be goodness. Nothing is at last sacred but the integrity of your own mind. Absolve you to yourself, and you shall have the suffrage of the world. I remember an answer which, when quite young, I was prompted to make to a valued adviser who was wont to importune me with the dear old doctrines of the Church. On my saying, 
What have I to do with the sacredness of traditions if I live wholly from within? My friend suggested, but these impulses may be from below, not from above. I replied, they do not seem to me to be such, but if I am the devil's child, I will live then from the devil. No law can be sacred to me but that of my nature. Good and bad are but names, very readily transferable to that or this. The only right is what is after my constitution, the only wrong what is against it. A man is to carry himself in the presence of all opposition as if everything were titular and ephemeral but he. I am ashamed to think how easily we capitulate to badges and names, to large societies and dead institutions. Every decent and well-spoken individual affects and sways me more than is right. I ought to go upright and vital, and speak the rude truth in all ways. And you were listening, by the way, to Bob Newfeld, and you can go on YouTube and hear him record so many of the great American works of art, all in the public domain. And you've been listening to his reading of Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And we dig into some of the American classics sometimes, folks. You've also heard Bob read Common Sense by Thomas Paine. And a lot of this writing is as relevant today as it was when it was written back then. And that's why we bring you these things, because what's old is new and what's new is old. This is Our American Stories, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Self-Reliance. More. <clears throat> this is this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Ralph Waldo Emerson's story, in a way, all through his epic essay, Self-Reliance. <laughs>